The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week, we dig into the Flint water crisis. What happened, how it got so bad, what turned the tide, what's still left to do, and the mix of science, politics, and activism that are still needed to finish pulling Flint out of the crisis. Hello, and welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me is Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha, a physician, scientist, and activist who has been called to testify twice before the United States Congress, has been awarded the Freedom of Expression Courage Award from PEN America, named to Time 100, and has attracted an army of allies across the country. She was the Union of Concerned Scientists 2016 Got Science Champion, and was a 2017 March for Science Honorary Co-Chair. She's also the author of the book, What the Eyes Don't See, a story of crisis, resistance, and hope in an American city. Mona, welcome to Science for the People. Rochelle, great to be with you. So since your book uh, and our conversation today is going to uh, kind of hyper-focus on the Flint water crisis in a lot of ways, just for the listeners who might not be in the U.S., uh, we have listeners, English-speaking listeners from all over the world, can you give us a quick background on Flint uh, that's sort of relevant to this crisis, just to kind of set the stage for what happened. Sure. So Flint is a great American city in the middle of Michigan, which is very much in the middle of the Great Lakes, which is the largest source of fresh water in the world. Uh, Flint was the birthplace of General Motors. Uh, at one point, Flint uh, was really a mecca for manufacturing. Uh, people all over the world moved to Flint for great living wage jobs. And not too long ago, in the 1970s, the people of Flint actually had the highest per capita income um, in the nation. Um, that changed significantly in the 1980s. And, and because of that uh, disinvestment, uh, Flint has really been in crisis for decades, uh, suffering from things like unemployment, poverty, racism, population loss, decline of unions, um, significant disparities because of the loss of great living wage jobs. Uh, and that really led to a near bankruptcy state in 2011 in the city of Flint. Because of that, the state took over the city. Um, in Michigan, there was a law called the Financial Emergency Management Law, uh, where the state just became under the control of, of the city became under the control of the state and essentially lost democracy in 2011. The focus of those emergency managers, and there was a series of four of them, was really austerity. It was how do we save money with very limited uh, impact on public health or children's health or environmental health. And they decided that the water that we had been getting from Detroit, which was Great Lakes water, was too expensive for this poor, predominantly minority city. And in 2014, we switched our drinking water source from the Great Lakes uh, to the Flint River uh, to save money. Uh, the Flint River water was not being treated properly. It was missing an ingredient called corrosion control. And because of that, the uh, pipes, which are predominantly lead-based, began to leach out lead into our drinking water and, and into the bodies of our children. That happened for about 18 months. Um, and the whole time, uh, really every level of government was reassuring the people of Flint that everything was okay, when really it was not. Okay, so that gives us a solid kind of background to get started. So you mentioned that um, Flint changed its water source uh, from the Great Lakes to the Flint River. And this was is sort of considered to be, I guess, like the start of the water crisis. Um, so can we drill in a little bit more to that decision? That was a money saving decision? 
Yeah. So in April of 2014, the emergency managers decided uh, with the state's approval, because they reported to the state, to the governor's office, that the Lake Huron water that we were buying from Detroit was too expensive uh, and that they would switch for a temporary period to the Flint River until a new pipeline to the Great Lakes was to be built. So the switch to the Flint River was never supposed to be a permanent decision. It was just uh, for a short period until a new pipeline was to be built. However, that really created a perfect storm um, for for the crisis for several reasons. L- river water is innately more corrosive than lake water. Um, and the most important factor for the crisis uh, was that it was not being treated properly. Corrosion control is a it's almost a federally mandated ingredient uh, that you are supposed to put in water. So I've learned so much about really the art of water treatment. It's not cookie cutter. It really depends on the water source that you're using. But all water is supposed to have this ingredient called corrosion control. And, and to me, I think of it like a medicine that you put in the water treatment to prevent whatever is in the pipes from coming out of the pipes and going into the drinking water. So this water was innately more corrosive. It wasn't being treated with this necessary ingredient. And then it was going through a water distribution system that was old um, and and outsized. So 2014 was the first time that Flint's population went under 100,000 people. But our water distribution system was built population twice that size. So there was a lot of stasis or sitting of this water within the distribution system, which made which made for more contact time of this corrosive water with lead in our plumbing. And why do we have lead in our plumbing? Um, this is one of my favorite stories. So, so we are all scientists. So I'm going to quiz you, Rochelle. So do you remember the elemental symbol for lead? Uh, I think it's PB, isn't it? Yes, you're right. So PB, which comes from the Latin plumbum. So lead actually means plumbing, which I had no idea before this water crisis. Um, and the, you know, it's a, the Latin derivation of, of plumbing. Romans actually built their aqueducts out of lead plumbing. Um, there's been lead in our plumbing since the beginning of time. And we've actually had reports of the dangers of lead in plumbing since that time. There's even theories that hypothesize that the Romans, the demise of the Romans is because they use so much lead in their plumbing. They also did crazy things like use lead as a salt and ate it freely. Anyways, there's always been lead in our plumbing. And as a nation, we were very slow to restrict the use of lead in our plumbing. Not until 1986 did we restrict lead from our service lines, which are the pipes that go from the the water main to someone's home. And get this, not until 2014 did we restrict lead from our brass fixtures. So this innately more corrosive water that wasn't being treated properly, that was going through this oversized age distribution system, was in contact with all of this lead in the plumbing, which is in all of our plumbing. And that all together created this perfect storm for the lead to come out of the plumbing and into the drinking water.
So it's really a combination of factors. It wasn't that necessarily, it wasn't that there was lead in the water source. It was that this new source of water made it uh, more likely that lead pre-existing in the old pipe system, because it wasn't being treated properly, would corrode into the water. Absolutely. So many people actually think that the Flint water crisis happened because the Flint River was polluted. Um, and it, it wasn't the problem with the source of the water. Yeah, it was not an ideal source water. It does have a history like history of pollution. The Flint River actually caught on fire twice in its history, but but you got it. The, the problem was that the water wasn't treated properly and the lack of the proper treatment um, caused the, the corrosion to happen and the lead to come into the drinking water. Uh, research uh, done by Mark Edwards and at Virginia Tech, a water scientist, actually showed that the, the Flint drinking water was 19 times more corrosive than the water we had been getting from Detroit, the Great Lakes water. So substantially more corrosive than the the water that was coming before. Was that water being treated? And so there was sort of this twofold problem of so much more corrosive and also not being treated? Absolutely. So the Great Lakes water that we had been getting from Detroit was was lower corrosive. It was less corrosive to start with, but it was also being treated with the corrosion control. Um, and that's what, you know, the combination of, thing, of those things made the Flint River water, Flint water more corrosive. So now that we're sort of a few years after this crisis and some of this has been resolved, is it known why that this treatment wasn't done? Yeah, that's like the $64 million question. <laughs> uh, why? Like, why wasn't this done? And that's why we have so many investigations and so many um, efforts to get at that accountability. Nobody really knows why. Uh, you know, this is this was supposed to be done. This was this was a law. Was it misinterpreted? Was it laziness? But no, nobody really knows why the water wasn't treated properly. We did later find out that the the treatment of that water would only have cost eighty to a hundred dollars a day, which is great irony because this was all under kind of the rouse of austerity, yet it would not have cost much to add the proper treatment. Yet the treatment wasn't added and the the pump to install this treatment chemical was never even installed. So there really was no intent to properly treat this water. So this was like the tiniest financial corner to cut with a really big impact. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, it's, it's baffling why it never happened. And, you know, I look forward to the ongoing investigations. Uh, This is, this is definitely not history. This is all ongoing to figure out the why of, of this mystery. There were some early warning signs as well. My understanding from your book and researching the crisis a little bit as well was that GM uh, stopped using Flint water after the switch in their plant because they noticed it was corroding engine parts. Oh, Rochelle, this is the most shocking thing to me. And this is this really is the beginning of the dismissal of science. So Flint is a, an example of, you know, extreme example of the disrespect for science, uh, not just the science of lead in the water and the lead in the children's blood, but it is common sense science of, of corrosion. So it, uh, this water, just a few months into this water switch, General Motors, which was born in Flint, which still operates in Flint, um, stopped using this water because it was corroding their engine parts. And they got a bypass to go back to Great Lakes water. I mean, this, 
you know, you do not need to be a scientist to understand that there's something wrong with this water. If it is corroding engine parts, what is it doing to our infrastructure, which is predominantly lead-based? And this was just a few months after the water switch, a full year before my research. For me, it's one of those things where it's like, if it's corroding engine parts, setting aside for a second, the obviously really important, what is it doing to the plumbing infrastructure? What is it doing to the human body? Oh my hmm. goodness. Absolutely. And, and there was so, so much other science that was dismissed. Uh, right away, uh, there was color changes in the water and, and different smells and tastes. And, uh, the, the, there was a rust color to the water. And that was because our iron pipes were corroding as well. So not just lead pipes were corroding, the iron pipes were corroding, which was making that rusty color that you saw in all the images of Flint. Uh, so lots and lots of, of science was dismissed and denied, uh, predominantly because of the, the demographics of this population. Many investigations have happened, and they all point to the fact that what happened in Flint is a case of environmental injustice, where once again, a population that is predominantly poor, a population that's predominantly my- minority, disproportionately suffer from the burden of environmental contamination. This is definitely something that you talk about a lot in your book, is that this is n- not simply uh, an unfortunate crisis and event that happens to a city that was on the up or a city that was sort of middle of the road. This is compounding things that are already knocking Flint down and uh, knocking the people down quite hard because there is already a deep poverty and a deep injustice happening in Flint, setting aside the water crisis. And then adding that to it really causes so many more problems. Absolutely. There's a lot of of history in this book, but it's not like boring, I'm going to fall asleep history. It's like page turning, exciting history. Um, But we need to know that history, uh, the history of public health, the history of lead, the history of Flint, uh, because without the recognition of of that history and the factors which got us to our current state, we we fail to move forward and and we risk um, repeating these same mistakes. Uh, so, so we need to know that Flint had suffered from, um, you know, the, that this was the villains in this story um, were not just the people that you can name, but the villains were these underlying ideologies of austerity and racism and, you know, disinvestment. And these are the factors that contributed to this crisis and, and got us to where we were. And that this crisis was not, as you said, just a fluke accident, um, that it was really built on top of decades of crisis and neglect. So before we get into a few more of the details about the Flint crisis and how you came to understand what was going on, um, can we talk a little bit more about lead? Because one of the, the things that for me was quite surprising to read in your book was there seemed to be some doubt as to the danger of lead in water. Um, and that to me was kind of mind blowing that that was even in question because it seems to me that that the, the problems with lead in the human body are already so well known and so well established that that even shouldn't be a point of contention, but it seemed to have been. So could you give us a quick run through of what the known problems with lead in the body are? Yeah, so lead is probably the most well studied neurotoxin known to man. Uh, we've known about its evils really for centuries, like I, I you know, as I mentioned earlier, uh, 
the Romans, we know we knew even back then what, what led to, to, to the body. Uh, but really, over the last few decades, science has really brought us to the point that we now understand that there is no safe level of lead. Levels that we thought were okay decades ago, um, we now know are no longer okay, and that there is no acceptable level of lead in the body because of what it does, especially to developing children. It impacts cognition, uh, actually drops IQ levels. It impacts impacts behavior, uh, leads to things like attention deficit disorder, hyperactivity, developmental delays. It's even linked to impulsivity and criminality. Lead does these things at a population level. Uh, really, the field of environmental health, epidemiology has brought a clear what, what lead does to populations. Uh, we also now know that although we've been doing a great job in public health, decreasing children's exposure to lead, primarily because we got lead out of gasoline and paint, uh, we continue to have significant disparities of children who are exposed. Lead is also known as an, a form of environmental racism. Our kids in Flint already had higher levels of lead, uh, just like kids in Detroit and Chicago and Baltimore and Philadelphia. Some of our country's most vulnerable children who are already rattled with so many other toxicities, such as poverty and, you know, racism and, you know, violence and lack of nutrition are also the same populations burdened with, with higher levels of lead exposure. Um, so in the field of public health, we now advocate for something called primary prevention for lead, which means you're never supposed to expose a population to lead uh, because it is irreversible. There is nothing that you can do once a child is exposed. You mentioned uh, in the book at a certain point that we're sort of going about detecting lead kind of the wrong way, which is we're using kids as the canary in the coal mine. If a kid is having developmental issues or having particular symptoms, we might order uh, a blood toxicity to see if there's any lead. And if there's lead, then we'll go investigate where the lead might be coming from. Uh, but that seems to be kind of the wrong way around to do it. You probably shouldn't use vulnerable children as the canaries in that particular coal mine. You're right. And this is what we do every day. We, we continue to this day to use children as literally detectors of environmental contamination. When we we screen children for lead, because our eyes do not see lead. It's, I mean, one of my favorite questions I love to trick my students, my my residents, and my medical students is like, how does a child with lead poisoning present? Oh, and they'll scratch their head and they'll be like, oh, you know, school problems and headaches and stomach aches and behavior problems. Um, I'm like, you're wrong. It's asymptomatic. We do not see the symptoms of lead poisoning. That's one of the reasons the title of my book is What the Eyes Don't See. It is well known um, as, a, as a silent pediatric epidemic. The impact, the effect is subclinical. Uh, but we do see the consequences years, if not decades later, when these children are having problems in school and behavioral issues. Uh, so what we do in, in medicine and in, in pediatrics is we screen children for lead at the ages of one and two. And when we do that, like I said, we are just using our kids as detectors of environmental contamination. The field of public health has to move in the direction of primary prevention, where we screen environments before children are ever exposed. And that's beginning. That's starting. Flint's doing that. Other communities are doing that. Um, it's gaining momentum after the Flint water crisis. Um, but it needs a lot of resources. And the field of lead prevention, lead elimination, 
really all of public health is grossly underfunded. So are the the symptoms of of lead and some of the chronic poisoning and its effects on children, are these kind of widely scientifically agreed upon? I mean, I just want to be clear, we're not using wildly new science here. <laughs> no, this is old science. This is, this is, uh, you know, 1970s, 1980s, 1990s, uh, is when a lot of this research first came about, was developed, was confirmed. Um, and this is, you know, public statements, uh, evidence-based statements by the CDC, by, by the World Health Organization, by the American Academy of Pediatrics. This is well-known, well-respected science. This is nothing where there's fuzzy science on, like, oh, what should we be doing with, uh, you know, PFOS or, you know, this poison or that poison or flame retardant. This is well-known science that we have gotten to the point that there is no safe level of lead. So this is the same science that led us to do things like eliminate lead from our gasoline and eliminate lead from paint products as well. Absolutely. But as a nation, the United States was very slow to eliminate that. Uh, the, you know, the Europe and the UK eliminated lead in, in most paint in the 1920s uh, because of the reports of its toxicity. But it was actually that same time that we put lead in our gasoline and really poisoned the entire world. Uh, so the lead industry, and you'll read this in the book, it's, um, has quite a dramatic and an evil past, uh, and really put profits over people. Uh, so we continued to use lead, um, for much longer than we ever should have. And we were stubbornly slow to remove lead, um, from, from a lot of these sources. And so, of course, because a lot of the infrastructure in places like Flint is still f- sort of was built in that time when we were using things like lead paints and hasn't been rebuilt or repainted. There's already an existing high level of lead exposure to a lot of the people and kids living in Flint. Absolutely. And that's why many kids in underserved, resource-poor communities are predisposed to lead exposure. Lead is a heavy metal. It is hard to get rid of. Uh, anybody who has lived in an old home knows how you have layers and layers of paint and the oldest layers on the bottom. And those are often, you know, contaminated with lead. Our soil is, is contaminated, especially in areas that were along highways because of lead and gasoline. Uh, so there's a lot of legacy sources of lead, um, from when we used to use it. But and, and, you know, we still have not completely eliminated it from all sources. There's there's lead in bullets, there's lead in fishing tackle, there's lead used in jet fuel. Lead continues to be used in, in other sources, including in plumbing. Um, like I said, not until 2014, we restrict lead from brass fixtures, but it's still used in uh, non-potable plumbing um, fixtures. That's so shocking that we still actively used lead in plumbing fixtures up till 2014. It is unreal. So, uh, you know, Flint Public Schools had some of the highest water lead levels. And they did not have lead service lines. Big buildings did not have lead service lines. But it was their fixtures and faucets that were leaching the lead uh, because of the corrosive water. So they all had to be replaced with fixtures and faucets that were built after 2014. Um, and this has been a wake-up call to the nation because almost every week we are now hearing about another school district that is testing and finding lead in their water because it's there, because we had, you know, lead was allowed in these in these fixtures and faucets until fairly recently. And we, because we don't reliably go back and maintain places like schools, we tend to build them and then not go back to them until they're literally falling apart. Those fittings and fixtures will 
be there for a long time unless we spot them and change them. Yeah. And there's also no regulations um, about water testing in schools and childcare facilities. So, you know, who doesn't think that, especially United States, you know, the richest country in the history of the world, who doesn't think that when you turn on your tap that your water is okay. But, but since Flint, you know, people don't think that their water is okay anymore. And rightly so. Uh, the laws that govern, especially lead in the water are outdated and they have not caught up with the science of, of no safe level of lead. The lead and copper rule is specifically what governs, governs lead and water as part of the Safe Drinking Water Act has not been updated in years. And it has nothing in there about childcare facilities and schools where our most vulnerable population, uh, drinks their water. One of the things that you talk about in the book that I didn't know was how lead is an even higher risk for children who ingest a paint chip or drinking um, leaded water uh, if the child is malnourished because it, yeah. their bodies try and seek more from that thing that's been put inside it. Absolutely. And that's another reason why these kids in these underserved communities have higher risks of, of lead exposure, not only because they have more lead in their environment, because of pre-existing poor nutrition. So if you have an empty stomach, Stomach, or you're deficient in certain nutrients like calcium and iron and vitamin C, you absorb lead more readily. Um, lead has this very kind of short detection window in your in your blood. It has a half-life of 28 days, but then it eventually gets stored in your bones. And it can last in your bones really for decades. Um, and in periods of, of poor nutrition in the future or periods of stress, pregnancy, it can come back out of those bone stores, um, go back into the bloodstream and cause that neurotoxicity all over again. So that's why nutrition is also a long-term solution. Um, you know, kids exposed to lead decades ago still need to have proper nutrition to, to limit the release of lead from those bone stores. So this becomes part of the treatment for the kids who were exposed to lead is making sure those uh, kids have access to good nutrition, have access to the food that they need to be healthy, just to kind of try and prevent more damage being done to the lead that's kind of stuck in their systems. Absolutely. And that has been um, a central arm of our recovery has been our nutrition programming. Uh, so really since the recognition of this, of the widespread um, lead exposure, the, you know, really the trauma of this whole crisis, my focus has been on, on the tomorrows of these children. And, you know, I, I now direct something called a pediatric public health initiative, which is really building a model public health program in Flint to make sure our children not only recover but thrive and we are leaning on the incredible science of brain development on toxic stress on resilience building to 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 mitigate the impact of this crisis and a central part of that work is around nutrition nutrition is literally brain food uh so and and nutrition starts um very early it starts with with breastfeeding one of the one of the reasons that we were hit so hard by this crisis is because flint like so many of our inner cities has terribly low breastfeeding rates. And many of our babies were using the tap water mixed with powdered formula um, to make to, you know, to make their only nutrition. That is all that babies were eating, uh, drinking was this lead tainted water mixed with powdered formula. Uh, so a big part of our recovery efforts has been to expand breastfeeding efforts. This is the num you know, number one nutrition that, that babies get. 
And we've been able to uh, build a workforce of, of folks who are trained as lactation counselors uh, to expand, you know, our rates and improve our rates of breastfeeding. That's just one example. Other efforts include um, nutrition prescriptions. We now have mobile grocery stores, expansion of food assistance programs. Uh, a lot of our efforts are centered around nutrition uh, to help children recover. It's one of those things in the book as I was reading, because in some cases, there is no option that breastfeeding for whatever reason isn't an option for the mother, because um, there are definitely those kinds of cases. And in those cases, the suggestion is to use bottled water with formula. But if you're already poor, if you're already struggling to make ends meet, bottled water is just one more thing that you have to buy. Yeah, this is, you know, I discuss this in my book. And, you know, I was telling my patients, do not waste your money on bottled water. Tap water is fine. Uh, moms, anxious moms would come to clinic uh, concerned about what they're hearing about the water or, you know, their own experience with the water. Uh, and I would tell them that how could our water not be okay? Do not waste your very limited resources on bottled water or nursery water. It's totally fine to mix your baby's formula with this tap water. Um, and of course, I was wrong. There's one moment in the book as well that really sticks out to me. Um, after you had learned more about what was happening uh, with Flint water, but it wasn't public, the study was still in process, and you were still trying to figure out what was happening. Um, you talked to a woman whose child was having some skin issues, and the prescription was no more baths in Flint water. But that is a whole new kind of problem. Where does a child <laughs> bath in a city like Flint if they can't use Oh. That one uh, broke my that, heart. <laughs> I know that, and that continues to be an issue. Um, one of the first manifestations of this crisis was skin issues. Uh, the CDC actually came in and did an entire kind of skin investigation. Why were people having so many skin issues? And, uh, you know, there was so much stuff in this water. Not only was it uh, more corrosive, but there was bacteria issues. There's a lot of stuff in this water that pre, you know, predisposed people that led to a lot of these skin issues. Uh, we would have children who would take baths, uh, and they would get a rash up to that water line, uh, children with, you know, losing hair and eyebrows and all these different things because of their, their interaction with this water. Uh, and there were so many instances where, you know, the moms we do talk about this in the book, like, you know, where are they supposed to bathe their children if they can't bathe their children at home? And these are moms, um, you know, who, who love their children just just like you and I love love our children um, yet they have no you know limited transportation um, every obstacle of poverty to to do what they need to do for their kids and and you know the state and everybody is telling them that this water is okay yet in their heart in their gut they know that this water is not okay and and they're left with the obstacle of, of finding a place to bathe their children so their kids don't have these unexplained rashes. Um, it's mind boggling. It is, you know, to this day it continues to be mind boggling that this, this continues to happen in a city in the richest country in the history of the world, yet a city that is also literally in the middle of the largest source of fresh water in the world. It's particularly, like you say, it's, it's a particular note that Flint is so close to the Great Lakes. And yet this is the problem that is happening in, in Flint. That is definitely a bit of a punch to the gut. <laughs> Ugh, it's uh, and and you know in more recent trauma to the city, uh, you know the same week that the state cut bottled water supply to the people of Flint, they also granted Nestle almost unlimited access to Great Lakes water for just two hundred dollars a year. 
that they could draw water, bottle it, sell it. Uh, yet the people of Flint to this day have trouble with not only the access, but also the affordability of, of water. So I want to talk a little bit more about your specific um, relation to the Flint water crisis, because you were quite, quite instrumental in getting changes made. Um, can you take us back to when you first kind of got involved in the water crisis, or maybe when you first kind of realized there was a crisis? Yeah, so, you know, for about a year and a half, my eyes were closed um, to, to the water issue. Like, I'd kind of heard about it. It was on the local news. But I was very much, like I said, reassuring my patients that everything was okay. How could it not be okay? Of course, drinking water is going to be okay. There is rules and regulations. And there's people whose, whose primary job is to make sure that our drinking water is okay. So I was very much drinking the Kool-Aid, you could say. Um, that all changed uh, in the summer of 2015, in the late summer, when a high school girlfriend came over, who, and she happened to be a drinking water expert. Uh, she happened to work at the EPA uh, about a decade ago when Washington, D.C. had a very similar lead and water crisis. Uh, so we're hanging out, our kids are playing together, and she kind of corners me in my kitchen uh, and shares really what she knows, that she had seen a memo from a former colleague at the EPA uh, that alerted um, her and others that Flint wasn't treating its water properly. And because of that, there would be lead in the water without the proper treatment, this corrosion control. And that was the very, very first time I heard the word lead. I had heard about the bacteria and the color and the odor and the taste and all these, you know, citizen complaints and activity, but I'd never heard the word lead. And when a pediatrician here hears the word lead, um, when anybody in public health hears the word lead, uh, there's really no going back. Uh, we know what lead does. We know that our Flint kids are already suffering from so many disparities. Um, and that really kind of began my role in this crisis to find out if that lead in the water was getting into the bodies of our children. So your first work with this crisis was to actually to dig for the science to try and find out both how much lead was getting into children's bodies? Was it greater now that the water had switched over? And could you sort of prove it beyond a shadow of a doubt? Because there's a long history in various lead crises, including uh, what happened in DC to that science being thrown into doubt when it gets raised. Absolutely. So I knew I needed data in my pocket. I knew I needed the science in, in my pocket, the impact of, of the lead in the water. Excuse me. So we knew that children um, were screened for lead, uh, but we also knew that we don't do a good job screening children. Uh, about a decade ago, the screening of children was a universal recommendation by the Centers for Disease Control. Every single kid had to be screened for lead at the ages of one and two. Uh, however, as we decreased the um, the exposure to lead and less children were exposed to lead because we got out of paint and gasoline that no longer became a universal recommendation. It's now only targeted. So only, for example, kids on Medicaid, which serves as a proxy for poverty or kids who go to WIC or kids in old homes are screened. When that recommendation changed, that significantly dropped the screening rates of children. Um, however, in Flint, the majority of our patients are still in this high risk group. Um, so, they were still supposed to have 
blood lead screening done. Um, so I knew I would have at least some data to see if there was a change in children's blood levels after the water switched. Um, so I really embarked on, on one of the easiest research projects I've ever done, but it was done in, in record speed to find out what was happening to these screening levels of lead in children. And uh, this data is part of surveillance data. So as a physician, as a clinician, I can take care of lots of kids and I can see elevations in lead in one kid or not in one kid, but those are only the patients I'm treating. That's individual medical care. I can't make any claims about epidemics or what may be happening at a population level. And that's where the field of public health comes in. It's this perspective of stepping back and looking at big population level data. That's what surveillance programs are, are all about. And I knew that these lead levels in children are already part of surveillance programs. So we have surveillance programs for things like flu and HIV um, and the county health department. And at the state level, the state health department tracks these numbers to look at trends and to look for things like epidemics or what may be happening at a population level. So I first tried to get that big data what from both those health departments and really had red blocks, red, you know, roadblocks at every corner. I could not get that surveillance data. And then we realized that our children's hospital, which is really the only children's hospital in the, in the county, actually ran most of the lead levels um, in, in the area. So we pulled that data from our own electronic medical records. And thank God we had gone electronic a few years back because if we were still on paper, it would have taken forever to pull. Um, and really in record speed was able to pull that data and compare the lead levels of children uh, before the water switch. And we compared them to lead levels of children after the water switch. And what we found, which was really contrary to everything that was happening at the, in the nation, the state, and at the local level, we found that the percentage of children with elevated lead levels increased after the water switch. We also found that the greatest increases were geographically in the same areas where the water lead levels were the greatest. And we also noted that there was no change, no statistically significant change in children's blood lead levels outside of Flint, outside of the water, the drinking water area. Um, and obviously, you cannot prove causation, but this was very strong correlation that the water um, had increased children's lead levels. Part of the, the work here was to make sure that the increased levels that you were seeing weren't being caused by some other plausible thing, because you can't causal causally tie it to the water perfectly. It's more about eliminating the other potential contenders for having caused this, right? Right. So, you know, we, uh, when you, when you do science, when you do research like this, you try to be a devil's advocate. You try to punch holes in your research every which way, um, to make sure that it's coming out, you know, accurately. Uh, and we try to explain this data, these results off in multiple different ways. We also ran the data in multiple ways. We ran, for example, the first time lead level of a child versus the highest lead level of a child. Um, you know, we, we also controlled things like for seasonality. Children's lead levels actually increase in the summer. You have more kids with elevated lead levels in the summer because 
they're outside, they're in contact with, for example, contaminated soil, windows are opening and closing, which leads to more dust from the windowsills, which has lead in it. Um, also, lead in water um, increases in the summer because of the heat from the pipes increases the leaching of, of lead and water. So we, we controlled for all of these other confounders um, which would have, you know, manipulated our results. But time and time again, every which way that we ran the data, the data was the same. There was an increase in the percentage of children elevated lead levels in the drinking water limits, and nothing was happening outside of the drinking water limits. And part of me wanted to be wrong. I did not want this data to be right. I did not want the science to be right because if the science was right, that means our children were being poisoned by this water. You agonized over this study and spent a lot of time thinking about it and worrying about it, both, like you say, in part because you didn't want it to be true, but also you knew that you were on grounds that some people were going to push back on. Uh, this was not going to be friendly politics once the study became public. We've seen that during the DC water crisis. Um, you talk in your book about EPA manager Miguel de Torrell and his uh, efforts to try and raise some awareness. Mark Edwards' story comes up as well as someone who has reliably, repeatedly fought uh, for public health and water in particular with lead in water and has regularly been shot down and there's been massive attempts to discredit yeah. him. So you knew the stakes kind of heading into this, uh, into this study, and you really spent a lot of your energy to try and make it as, as perfect as you possibly could, given your limitations. Yeah, you know, everybody who had raised any concerns in Flint was attacked. You know, for 18 months, the heroic people of Flint they were attacked. They were dismissed. They were denied. Journalists were attacked. Mark Edwards, which which clearly showed the science of lead and water, was attacked. The state actually called him a magician, that he was pulling rabbits out of hats for saying he would just be pulling lead out of water wherever he goes. Um, he had been working hand in hand with the people of Flint, doing citizen science, and very clearly and transparently showing that there was lead and water. All of these people were attacked before I presented my research. So I, I knew that there was going to be pushback. Um, and I tried to prepare myself for that. Um, but nothing can really prepare you for the entire state telling you you're wrong. So, you know, we shared this research publicly, which is also not something you're supposed to do in science and academia. You're not supposed to share research at a press conference. Uh, you're supposed to share, you know, it's supposed to go through the peer review process, but that takes time. And our children did not have another day. So we publicly shared this science at a press conference and the state and almost every arm of the state attacked me and attacked the science. Uh, they said I was an unfortunate researcher, that I was causing near hysteria, which is um, one of my favorite terms because it's also sexist. Uh, they said I was splicing and dicing numbers. Uh, and they also said that my numbers uh, were not consistent with their numbers. So remember, the state had these numbers because they, it's part of the surveillance programs. And they said that, you know, their, their numbers, uh, did not show this. And they had a larger data set than I did. Uh, so the entire state said I was wrong after I released my research. So this must have just been 
a very intense time. And that comes through in the book. Uh, I think anybody who has been aware of these political issues uh, is aware of the difficulty of trying to do good science, even when you're not under these kinds of stresses and pressure and time crunches, I think uh, sympathizes with what you must have been feeling at that time. Was there ever a time during this initial work for this first study before you took the study public, where you thought, Maybe this isn't worth it for me. Maybe I'm not the person to bring this to the public's attention. Maybe someone else should do this job. Um, you know, there was flitters of that. And there was definitely that moment after the state was attacking me, uh, you know, saying I was wrong that I, you know, I literally uh, hid under my covers and doubted myself. Uh, you know, what, what, what was I thinking? I'm not an expert here. How could I have done this? But those moments lasted really seconds uh, because it was really quick for me to realize that this, these attacks, this, this self-doubt, this, this was not about me. This was, this war, this battle had nothing to do up with me. And it had everything to do with, with the children, the children that as a pediatrician, as a scientist, I have literally taken an oath to protect. Um, so that's really kind of what got me back and, in, in this fight, what, what got me back, um, you know, fighting with, with more data. So, you know, when the state attacked our data, we, we went back and attacked, you know, and, and them with more data, with more science, with more evidence, sharing why we were right and, and why they were wrong. So after the initial round of data, um, or the initial study that you released, uh, you actually worked on a second study. Can you talk about that second study and what you were trying to do with that one? Sure. So after we did go public at the press conference and, and the state attacked us, and then they eventually did concede that, oh, yeah, we went back and looked at our numbers. You're right. We do have a lead problem. And that really kind of began uh, our the recovery efforts. Within a few weeks, we did switch back to treated water. Uh, but very rapidly, we knew that we had to get something published and we wanted to be even more um, accurate w- with our science. So we enlisted the help of a medical geographer um, who was an expert at, at GIS, uh, Geographic Information Systems, and he geocoded all of our data. So we knew exactly where all of the children were living and knew exactly um, where um, where they were getting their water from. Uh, our initial study was based on zip codes, and the zip codes were not uh, included children who were, you know, it lived in the city of Flint, but also included children who did not live in the city of Flint. But when we were able to kind of geocode, we, it was much more precise who was getting this water and who wasn't. Uh, and when we did that research, it was even more definitive, um, you know, that there was an increase in children's lead levels. And we also overlaid that with the water lead levels. And it was even more, um, uh, correlated with where the water lead levels were the greatest. So you were able to take uh, geographic representations of where sort of like, I'm assuming postcode level, um, or sort of uh, zip code level, where water had been tested and revealed to have quite high lead levels in the water, and then overlay that with where the highest lead levels in children were popping up. Is that correct? Yes. Yep. And there was a high correlation between those two maps, I would guess. 
Absolutely. Yep. And this study you did get through peer review as that extra piece of let's make sure that this is as irrefutable as possible. Yeah, so this was published um, within a few months in the American Journal of Public Health. Uh, we also had a few follow-up papers published. And, you know, to this to date, there's been many, many publications about the Flint water crisis. Mark Edwards and his team has published quite a bit about the water lead levels. There's been several publications about the Legionnaires outbreak that happened in Flint. We spent, you know, quite a bit of time talking about, about the lead crisis. Uh, but the Flint water crisis is, is much more than that. Uh, it had the skin issues, like we talked about. Uh, but we also had one of the largest outbreaks of Legionnaires disease, which was also linked to the untreated corrosive water. People actually died because of contracting um, Legionella. And, and that's why there's actually homicide charges against some of the government officials. So the, the Flint crisis is, is so much more than just about lead. It's one of those things where we, we hear about the thing that makes the most news headlines. Um, Legionnaires is something that we often don't hear about. It's so rare. I think these days for to hear that people have contracted Legionnaires, never mind died of Legionnaires, um, that I think most people don't even know what Legionnaires is. Yeah, so Legionnaires is a is a pneumonia um, that usually elderly people, immunocompromised people get. Uh, it's from large water um, sources, so like hospital or water cooler towers, big towers. It's something you get through inhalation. Uh, uh, during the water crisis, there was about 12 people confirmed with um, Legionnaires that died. Uh, yeah, And there was an uptick in overall pneumonia mortality, which many people now believe is undiagnosed Legionnaires disease because people didn't really know at the time that this was related to the water source. Um, it's now kind of being linked to one hospital um, that, was in, that was there, but because of the water. So in the same mechanism that we had lead corrosion, we also had iron corrosion. When there's iron, when there's iron in your water, it, it eats up your disinfectant. So it ate up the chlorine, which you need to have in the water. And then that really, the iron in the water also served as an overgrowth um, for these opportunistic pathogens. So it really created this perfect milieu uh, for Legionnaires disease to, to happen. Uh, it's actually one of the reasons that Mark Edwards came to Flint in the first place, because he predicted that there would be an outbreak of Legionnaires disease because of this water. It really goes to show you, as you mentioned earlier in our conversation, how much an art form water treatment is just that a little bit of extra iron or maybe a lot of extra iron caused by more corrosive water can just cause these kinds of changes and these kinds of extra considerations and extra problems. It, it Very difficult to track and to figure out the art of water treatment. My hats are off yeah. to the people who do it professionally. <laughs> yeah, and I think one of the lessons is that water treatment, water professionals are, are public health experts. You know, their duty is public health. And that's something that was lost in this crisis where um, investigations show that the folks at our Office of Drinking Water in our Department of Environmental Quality were more focused on on minimal compliance and rubber stamping and really forgot that their focus was really public health. One of the, the things that 
comes through from the very beginning of your book all through it into the end is a message of hope. You talk about in the book some very dark times in Flint that Flint is going through um, one of its potentially lowest valleys that it's ever been through. Um, and also, it's clear here that there is a huge failure of government um, in so many different ways, uh, both an active failure, people who have made incorrect choices, um, failures on the public health organizations that government put in, puts in place that should protect us from these things. Um, but throughout your book, you've woven a really strong sense of hope and message of hope. So in what seems to be just a message or sort of an event that is such about a loss of hope and um, austerity and hopelessness, why have you pulled through just this really strong um, message and pushed that message? Because I, I see it come up as well in things like your TED Talk. It, it very much seems to be at the core of what you want to put out there uh, as a takeaway from a crisis like this. Rochelle, you're awesome. And thank you for picking up on that. And and that's another reason that I wrote this book. But that's the reason that I wake up every day is the story of, of hope. Uh, so the, the, you know, the byline of this book is, um, it's a story of crisis, resistance, and hope. And, and it's not just about Flynn. It's really about the deeper crises that we're facing right now in this nation. Crises of democracy and voter disenfranchisement and gerrymandering. The crises of the disrespect for science. Uh, Flint is one example where, where science is being dismissed. But look what's happening nationally with, for example, climate change and the regulations that are protecting our air and water quality. It's about environmental injustices, not just in Flint, but everywhere. Um, but really, it's about the deeper crises in our nation in regards to our, our civic responsibility and our role as really human beings to care and provide for each other. So that's a, that's that's disheartening and that's scary and that's a lot of badness that's happening. Um, but this book and this story is also about the activism and the resistance that came out of this crisis. And I hope that this book is is really a rallying cry for folks to understand that yeah, there are these things happening in our nation, Flint and beyond, um, that we can close our eyes to, but that we have this obligation and this power within us to open our eyes and that it is not enough for us to be awake and alert to these problems, no matter where they are, no matter who we are, um, but that we all must take action to provide hope for our communities. We do not have to accept the status quo. We have that ability to to change, to improve, especially for our most vulnerable populations, especially for our children. Um, and that is the message that I want to share um, for, for everybody who reads this book, um, that that there is hope in in the darkest hours in the darkest places and and that we working together can build on that hope and that hope is not just a word it is real um, and it's based on science it's so easy right now to hear about things like what happened in flint what's still going on in flint um, and other parts of the world other parts of the u.s that are struggling um, and to just feel nothing but sort of cynicism and despair and a kind of despondence of there's so much bigger than me. There's not much I could do. Uh, there's no action that can be taken to fix this. It's, it's all in the hands of people more powerful than me. Um, and I think this book is a really lovely reflection on 
how important it is for each person to take ownership of what they can do, of what they are capable of doing and what they know how to do, but also a really strong reflection in the teamwork that was needed in order to make change happen in Flint. It wasn't until the right group of people found each other and all did their little part. It was your efforts to look into the science, your connection to the hospital and ability to access certain types of data and willingness to go and find that data and push for that data, as well as people like your friend who had the knowledge of water and water treatment and sort of what was happening on that end to be willing to educate you and prompt you to look into something that she couldn't look into, but suspected that maybe someone could. There were all these different people who sort of came together. Mm -hmm. um, And each person did a little bit of the lifting and together, it seemed like all together, it really took all of you to kind of move that ball forward. Absolutely. So this story is so much about the power of a team. Um, and a team that couldn't have been so different from each other. And so often I think, you know, we believe we're alone in our fights. We're alone in our struggles. Um, yet if we really opened our eyes and reached out, there's, there's folks that, you know, that want to accomplish the same thing that we do. Um, and it's, it, it requires our ability to really open our perspectives. Uh, I mean, Mark Edwards became my best friend in, in the story, and he couldn't have been more different than, than me. Uh, a water engineer uh, from the South, a white guy, you know, he votes different than me, he looks different than me. Um, and But he probably cares for children more than I care for children. And in our professions, we often become so siloed and so hyper-specialized that we fail to, you know, step out of our boxes and, and realize that there's folks out there who who really you know want the same things as we do and and are are doing very similar work so so this team this kind of ragtag team came together to make this happen but there's folks out there all over who you know who will be your allies um, if you reach out so just before we go, um, you, we often hear, especially from people in science, this discomfort with politicizing science or getting into the politics. And obviously, what happened in Flint and your relationship with what happened in Flint and your work uh, on the water crisis, that is extremely political in a lot of ways, but also so steeped in science. And you came at it from really both sides. So I'm curious if you have any thoughts for other scientists out there who maybe are reluctant to take up politics or reluctant to use science to um, what they see as maybe politicizing certain ends uh, as to just sort of other scientists that might be facing that kind of crisis that maybe you faced for a split second as to whether or not you were up to that political battle. Yeah, you know, I I hope the story in this book um, really gets more scientists and more academics and more doctors out of their ivory towers, out of their classrooms, out of their exam rooms, out of the hospitals, and into the community. Uh, the purpose of science is to, to advance, to benefit the human condition. It is not 
to live in our safe little bubbles, uh, to live in journals that nobody reads, um, you know, to live for grants and, and tenure and promotion. Um, the purpose of science is to make the world a better place. Um, and sometimes that's uncomfortable and sometimes that's scary and sometimes takes us in pl- to places that we don't expect to be in. Um, but th- that's where we need to go, especially today. Uh, there are communities that are just yearning for the credible voice of, of scientists uh, to be at their side, to help them test their water, their air, um, you know, to help investigate all these conditions that are, that are, that are plaguing their communities. Yet science often takes the, the easy step, uh, the easy, you know, choice and, and doesn't, uh, doesn't get involved. Um, if there ever was a time for us to be involved, um, in, 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 in our communities, hand in hand with our communities in partnership, um, this is the time. Mona, thank you so much. Uh, it's was a really fascinating, interesting book, um, that taught me a lot about what happened in Flint and what can happen in places like Flint that I did not know. Um, thank you so much. It's a great book and thank you for thank you. joining me for this hour. Thank you so much for having me. If you'd like to learn more about Mona Hanna Atisha or her book or the Flint Water Crisis, we will have links to get you started on learning all of that. Uh, you'll find those links in the show notes for this episode, which, as per usual, you'll find on our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Shell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anika Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me, Rochelle Saunders. 